Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Okay, so Augie is not here today because he's off wrestling a polar bear. Um, but fortunately for me, I have uh, Dr. Bill Newman, who is a professor in the <clears throat> political science department here at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he's going to talk to us today about executive orders. Welcome, Bill. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So I, um, you don't know this about me, but I'm pretty aspirational. And so far on this podcast, I've wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. I've wanted to be the Secretary of Defense. And then I think I settled on president. Because it seems like the president gets to do a whole lot of cool stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought that would be a good job. That'd be a fun thing to do um, in my off hours when I'm not being a librarian. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it doesn't seem to take up a whole lot of time. There seems to be a lot of golfing involved, a lot, a lot of dinner, a lot of standing around yeah. next to the flag, saying, "Isn't the flag great?" Um, which it is. I think it's a great flag. It's very distinctive. We have a very distinctive flag. Um, so I'm thinking about executive orders. I was thinking. Can I uh, can I ban something with an executive order like broccoli? If I was Bush, could I just Bush Senior, who I know is famously rather sort of <laughs> not fond of the little green trees? Can I do something like that with an executive order? The neat thing about executive orders is you can probably do just about anything you want for a short period of time. <laughs> until like s- like a short period of time, like ten minutes, or a short period of time, like my presidency, or I mean, um, are we talking glacial short periods of time? Or are we talking human? Or are we talking attention span? It depends on the legal system. So it could be a couple of days, it could be a couple of weeks, it could be months, it could be years until somebody turns around and says, "No, Mr. President, you don't have the authority to do that." Ms. President, thank you very much. I uh, guess that's right. I, I just I will be officially. <laughs> Well, yeah, currently for the 45 so far, you're right, mister. So, so would, so if I, so let's say that I did this, I'm banning mm-hmm. broccoli. Um, I don't, by the way, would not ban broccoli. Just so for our podcast listeners know, I actually love broccoli, but I'm just saying I'm picking something out of, out of the air. So if I ban broccoli and the Broccoli Association of America, which mm-hmm. I feel certain there is one, broccoli growers mm-hmm. of, of America or whatever, would bring a lawsuit saying, mm-hmm. hey, you can't ban broccoli. Broccoli, not only is broccoli healthy, but it's our business, right? You can't just go around doing that. Right. So that could take, that's what you mean by the legal system, right? They're going to bring right. some sort of, like, hey, put an injunction on that so he can't, she can't ban broccoli until, mm-hmm. until we get this settled in court. Right. And a judge could turn around and, and have an injunction within 24 hours and say, no, you can't do that. Or they may allow the executive order to go through and then it has to go through the regular court system. So it's got a local courts and then circuit courts and then maybe up to the Supreme Court. So it could take a while to do this. <laughs> I would love for the Supreme Court to hear a case on broccoli. I just really of the 80 cases they hear a year and all the things they turn away. That would be awesome. But anyway. I, I would protest it because I really like broccoli and garlic <laughs> sauce. So I would I would be on the front line of that one. Yeah, see, okay. So well and there would be a lot of people against it. Like yeah. there'd be a lot of people who love broccoli. There would be people who just on principle don't think that executive power should include banning vegetables. Vegetables. <laughs> I mean, like there there's there's a whole bunch of people who would work the ACLU would be on their side. Like the whole other side of that argument would be right. pretty much against me, which would be fine. Mm-hmm. Presidents don't actually do Executive orders like that, though. They do serious orders. 
do they write their orders or do they have teams that write their orders or is it like how does how oh. does it even get started? Well, they have a White House Counsel's Office, which is basically a, a staff of lawyers just for the President of the United States. And so, in theory, uh, you hope that executive order <laughs> comes out of there uh, because underneath an executive order is a law. So Congress has passed a law and the president believes, I have the authority to do this based on that law. Oh, so there would have first had to have been a a a law that came out of the Congress that said something about vegetables. Uh, right, or something or, about agricultural products or something about it. Uh, president could decide that broccoli was dangerous to public health and <laughs> ban it on that. And it's a homeland yeah. security issue. Right, it's a security <laughs> issue. Broccoli, Broccoli's being smuggled across the, the southern border <laughs> and you got to go in there. And that's why we're building a wall is to keep that Mexican broccoli out. Okay, you know, to that, protect American it. broccoli. Right. Protect to protect American, American broccoli. broccoli. Yeah. Okay. So, so it could be on, under a trade <laughs> legislation. <laughs> so does the does that do those have to be justified? I mean in some way are they usually you can usually point to the thing that they're saying right. no I'm not in favor of or are they narrowing the scope or are they going against the law? Like or are they doing uh, one or the other? Or they're both? In, they're interpreting the law. Okay. All right. Now so the, they're the, playing the part of justice. Right. Well, it's it's the hitch in it is that uh, members of Congress uh, write laws and get this legislation, and it may be 500 pages long, it may be 1,000 pages long, but no matter what it is, it's vague. Really? There always. are things in it, it's always. There are things in it that are open to interpretation, uh, and so we think of the courts as being the thing that interprets, but before the courts even get a chance to interpret most of this stuff, the president has to execute the law, right? Uh, and so there's the faithfully execute the law. Okay. But... The president looks at it and says, I will interpret this the way I want to interpret this. Because I hate broccoli. Because I hate broccoli. Right. So it uh, may say all yeah. vague, vaguely it says all vegetables. We are banning all vegetables from import mm -hmm. across the border. And I say, especially that dang broccoli, because no trees mm -hmm. for me. And, and so I write an executive order specifically saying, I interpret this to right. be... A broccoli trade issue. Yeah. Well, I, or I, I can. I, you I, have a real. I have one, a real I world example. Yes. But, but let me give the the, the thing that, that I sent you over email. Right. So, Congress says that uh, we believe that everyone should have a nutritious lunch at an elementary school, and everyone has. We want to pay for a nutritious lunch at elementary school, and which is an excellent idea. Right. By the way, and the president turns around and says, "Great, banana splits for everybody." Bananas are fruit, and, right? And chocolate is good for your heart. And strawberry is a fruit. And ice cream is made of like cream and milk, and not mean. And chocolate like, comes from a bean, and so does vanilla. Uh, so, so therefore, this is perfectly good. I'm uh, down with that. Of uh, the Reagan administration, <laughs> actually did something seriously like that, in which uh, oh, is they this declared infamous ketchup. Yeah, the ketchup was a vegetable. <laughs> You know, so they said you have to do vegetables. Now, that wasn't an executive, an executive order, but that was just you know, plain old implementation of the law. And presidents have leeway to do that until Congress turns around or, or someone who's been hurt by this brings it or believes they've been hurt by this, brings it to the legal system and says, this is not what the law intended. The law did not intend for ketchup to be vegetable. The law right. did not intend for a banana split to be a nutritional lunch. Right. No matter how hard you stretch that, right. it doesn't. It doesn't qualify because it doesn't meet sort of the basic standards of what we believe to be nutritious, right. and especially the, for growing persons in, yeah. in schools and that sort of thing. 
And there are obviously worse cases than that in reality. When Donald Trump first came in office, one of the first things he did was is he said, OK, we're going to ban immigration uh, and visits from people from certain countries. And it just happened to be a handful of Muslim countries, Muslim countries that didn't have any greater role in terrorism than other countries that weren't on the list. And he had said during the campaign that he wanted a complete Muslim ban. And he said, I'm going to do this. And his lawyers did a horrible job because the president does have the authority to go ahead and say, people from this certain country are dangerous to the United States for whatever reason. And it's usually because of war. I was going to say, it's usually yeah. they cite Homeland Security, right? They right. cite some sort of security. Or, or even before that, a national security threat. A lot of the stuff goes back to World War II. Oh. Okay. And being worried about German and Japanese spies. Which makes sense. Right. If you're at war with somebody, you don't, you know, you would want to limit their access to your nation. Right, right. So he was using that authority, but he did it in such a bad way because his lawyers were so bad that court slapped an injunction on it and said, no, this can't take effect. Because yeah. we have separation of church and state in this country. I mean, there's right. there are other underlying issues, constitutional issues that would make that problematic. Right. Right, right. They exactly. didn't just say that because, like, we don't like you. They can't just say that about the president. We don't like you, therefore we're going we're gonna to have an injunction against your executive order. Right. There has to be a counter mm -hmm. argument that they can point to and say, mm -hmm. here's why that's not an acceptable. And, and here's what you've done with the law is you've turned around and you've taken something which is your authority, but you're using it as essentially a Muslim ban, which is what you said you were going to use it as. And so he was honest. I mean, he, at least he was up yeah. front. One could... One one can argue, uh, in fairness to Donald Trump, that he regularly, as as president, fulfills his campaign promises, uh, or attempts to fulfill his campaign promises. He is yeah. he's trying to do what he said he was going to do, which you can interpret mm -hmm. that however you choose. And we, as here on the podcast, do not tell you how to think about the president, mm -hmm. um, except that we would like to, for you to note that we try to be as fair and balanced as we can. Um, but some of the things you're, he's done um, have not been, have been problematic is what you're, is what you're pointing out there. The, right. the writing of that was problematic. The underlying premise of it was problematic. And so the courts did what the courts do, which right. is they acted as a balance to the executive power. And they said, no, 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 we don't think so. We, we don't think that that's a good idea. Uh, right. And, and but, but eventually they did rewrite it sufficiently mm -hmm. That there was that there has been some. I, I don't know if it would one would say a ban, but there has been some limits. I mean, there have been limits right. set because they they went back and said, "Oh, turns out we we're just going to rewrite this and fix it." They rewrote it. They tried to look back at the laws that would actually allow you to implement these types of things, and they I believe they threw in Venezuela as well as a country and oh said, my. "Okay, so therefore it's not a Muslim ban," and they changed it a little bit, and so therefore it it passed. Uh, authority and said the president does have the power to do this. Whether it's a good idea or a bad idea is irrelevant because that's not the court's job. Right. The court's job is not to say we like it or we don't like it, but just to say, that's does the, the president have the job. authority? Right. And we have a, ch a chance to turn around and say whatever we want at a midterm and then at a reelection. But until then, it's just a matter of did the president do something that is legal for the president to do? So executive orders, mm -hmm. th that's all the court is deciding. It is right. not deciding an ethical issue. It is deciding a legal issue. Right. Right. And those are two very different things. Yes. Um, the ethical issues, I assume, come later with media and voting and Congress and mm -hmm. the difficulty of the president to do other things because people um, 
get irritated. Yeah, the, the last <laughs> thing courts want to do is get involved in, in politics. They well, just do not want to do that. I wouldn't. I mean, I totally can understand that in the sense that they are theoretically supposed to be the neutral mm-hmm. party that you can go to and say, okay, who's right here? And if you, if they are clearly partisan, then you would have difficulty with right. doing that, which I assume is where you get onto the problems with the Supreme Court and finding justices that can, that can rule in a neutral manner mm-hmm. um, and the questions that get asked of them. We talked about that in a, in a previous episode. The questions that get asked of them are occasionally... Um, a little pointed because mm-hmm. there's an attempt to find out if they are going to be able to be neutral on the right. On the and and uh, during some of the nomination hearings, you have people asking specific questions about religion, which is very clearly something that you should not do. The Senate cannot, should not, I should, shouldn't say cannot, but should not say to someone who might be a Supreme Court justice, no, tell me about your religious beliefs. Well, it's a job interview. Yeah. It's not legal to ask that question in right. any job interview. If you were interviewing me to work in the political science yeah. department, you couldn't say, Sonia, tell me about your faith and how it rela- uh, you know, right. and right. how it underpins your views of political science. I'd be like, oh, right. First of all, I'd be so shocked I wouldn't be able to answer, which would not reflect well on me. But also, <laughs> it, you're, I can see where if it's a job interview, even if it's the Senate to a Supreme Court justice, it's still a job interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So executive order. So you have one. I have one. I have one. Okay. So, is it a good one? Is it juicy? Uh, it's a very juicy one, and we'll never know how juicy it is until I get my glasses on. Awesome. <laughs> so I will waste time by saying, look, a pterodactyl in the corner of this building. Oh, oh look. Oh, hi, Nia. Oh, how hey. Are you? <laughs> I look completely different now that I'm not so blurry, huh? When did you get here? <laughs> okay. Uh, so... Okay, so it has a public law number. Right. Now, this is what's cool. Well, it has a public law number, so here it is. This is, I've got, a, I've got the joint resolution, but let me uh, bring out the, the executive order first. Okay, for the listeners, we are going to put links to this in the research guide for this podcast so that you'll be able to click on those and read them for yourself. Um, we do that with every document. We always attach a document to these podcasts, and this we'll do that with both the underpinning public law and with the executive order. Right. Yeah. And these are all these are all public. Uh, so after September 11th, uh, and this is something everybody knows at least a little bit about, uh, the United States actually started to detain people as unlawful <laughs> enemy combatants and put them in Guantanamo Bay. And the exact number of people was never really defined by the United States government, which was kind of unnerving. Because at times they implied that we're not sure exactly how many people we are holding right now or have held, which is scary because how, how you might we, lose some. Right. How can we not know that also? Because don't we feed them? I mean, that, that wouldn't you just be able to go buy meals? Yeah. Like we gave this many meals and we think that's probably this number of people. I mean, there were a lot of problems there. And, that's distressing. And what it came down to is they were holding certain people, but it was unclear where they were holding certain people. Oh, so not all at Guantanamo. Not all at Guantanamo. Oh, okay. And people were being moved, so they were trying to be to fudge it because someone may be in Guantanamo when the question is asked, but may be out of Guantanamo when the question is answered. Oh, my. Right? So they may be moved somewhere else for different interrogations, and sometimes those were overseas. So there's a lot of clandestine stuff going on, and and that was to keep all those specific numbers secret. So let me make Mm -hmm. clear a a question, or ask a question real quick. So these are enemy combatants from other countries Mm -hmm. that we have brought to the United States in order to detain, except that sometimes we detain them in other places. We don't detain them here. So there are... 
sort of rendition is it similar to rendition sites and that sort of thing where um, you right that's part of the where process where you have a third party that mm-hmm. will hold on to a person for you so that so you we can, have prisons in so Thailand so you can gently ask them questions in a polite yes. and positive manner and there were other people we are who, not going to make accusations here who you felt you <laughs> wanted what they referred to as enhanced interrogation and occasionally the United States would say, we don't want to do this, so we will take someone that we have under our authority and we will ship them to Jordan or Egypt or Saudi Arabia where the rules are different. We will get the information, but we will, uh, in theory, keep our hands clean. Um, and I say in theory. Because we right. because we handed them off, which is, right. I mean, we might as well have done it ourselves if we knew what was going to happen at the end of that. Exactly. Um, Not that we're opinionated, but we are. Yeah. So there we go. um, I'm opinionated on this particular topic, by the way, in the (laughs) sense that, and I'm going to be straight up with our podcast listeners, I don't think that, I don't think that torture is, I don't think it's effective. I think there have been studies that have shown that it's not particularly effective. I know there are arguments on the other side, but I don't believe it's effective and therefore I'm not a fan. Mm -hmm. I think that it also... Torture also, the whole point of having a judicial system is that we don't torture people. Right. And uh, up until September 10th, 2001, a lot of the things that we did starting on September 12th, 2001, were considered to be illegal and considered to be torture. And oh, then, really? Yeah. And but it's absolutely just... under U.S. law. And then we sort of went, eh, but we really, really need this information. So uh, we kind of said, eh, whatever. And then that was debated uh, really for the next eight years over whether what we were doing was legal or not legal. And it wasn't really until the Obama administration that that was settled. And during the Obama administration, we stopped the things that we had traditionally considered to be torture, like waterboarding and slapping and things like that. We stopped those things under Obama. When Donald Trump came in office, he said, I'm going to get back to torturing. We're going to do this again. He was explicit. He didn't say enhanced interrogation. He said torture. We want to torture people, and we're going to do it again. And when he got into office, he hired uh, James Mattis as his secretary of defense. And Mattis, a Marine general, said the United States military has studied this for years and years and years and years. And torture is, one, not effective. It doesn't work. And two, we torture people. That means we have no moral authority to tell people they can't torture U.S. soldiers. Right. So Right. It's a, I mean, it's a reciprocal thing. It's a bad idea. I mean. And it violates the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Well, and, do it. and just our ethos as a nation, we would right. we we perceive ourselves, I would hope, better than that. Right. It's we don't torture people. That's just not right. what we do right. here. Um, and I heard a, a rather impassioned speech by um, John McCain mm-hmm. on that topic, and it, it moved me from sort of a neutral position to an anti-position because he was a person who had been who right. had suffered mm-hmm. deeply under torture and. You know, it just is not. I mean, he couldn't raise his arms above his shoulders for crying right, out loud. Right. That's not something we as a nation should get behind. But anyway, yeah. that's completely off topic. Right. So, well, um, Mattis eventually, that. Mattis eventually told Trump, you know, this is a bad idea, and Trump said, okay, that's oh, it, good. And, and dropped the idea. Excellent. So, yeah. so, so presidents can be moved by their secretaries when they're oh. when they're given sufficient evidence and given sufficient, you know, information. They can mm. be moved from one position to another. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is yeah. a, which is why you need. Somebody in the secretary position who's pretty cool and pretty calm and sort which is, of knowledgeable. And which is why I'll give you one of my, my pet peeves. I think one of the dumbest things we do as a nation is that we elect a president and we have no idea who his advisors are going to be, which is incredibly foolish. I mean, we should know what the cabinet's going to look like before we vote. 
because those are the president's biggest decisions. Other than that, the only decision we've really seen him make as a presidential candidate is choosing the vice president. And we know they choose the vice president for all kinds of political reasons related right. to electoral college. But we want to know who is whispering in the president's ear. And so if, if I was in charge, I would if I was in Congress, I would have a bill that says, you know, by uh, September 1st, you know, cabinet choices. Really? All of them. Because we, we oh. should be able to know that. And if someone says, well, that's not fair to me because I have to put all this time in to basically now running for Secretary of Defense or Secretary of Homeland Security, and what if I lose? My answer is, if you can't spend three months doing that, then you don't deserve to be a cabinet officer. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I see. So by the t- by September, you would the primaries are done, so you would know who the two candidates right, are. Right. Generally, sp- sorry, the two candidates and the third Potential candidate, depending on whether we have somebody run in the Green Party or, uh, the, right, right. or the Libertarian Party. But So you would require that of all the parties. All the parties who are putting up a viable candidate yeah. would need to have at least, what, all of their secretaries or the top four or five? Oh, I would say all of them. Why not? I mean, this this is a serious thing. This is Well, and it shouldn't right. be a shock to the person who's going to be asked to do that, yeah. that you're going to be asked to do that. If right. you can get a, The FBI could get this head start on the vetting. Right, the background checks and all that kind right, of stuff. All that if kind you of did stuff. that, and then you'd get an idea of if someone chooses, you know, out of out of the, let's say we say we say they have to do ten cabinet members, and they choose ten of them, and five of them wind up having all kinds of difficulty. That's nice to know before you start voting. That's true. Right? Why, why like, not? Your friends are mildly criminal, or or whatever, right, or right. your friends just aren't prepared to be. Secretaries, as right. we've discussed earlier, uh, you don't know, but you haven't heard this podcast, but we, mm-hmm. we actually called them fifteen unicorns because the the skill set they have to have, or they they have to be, yeah. they have to be able to advance public good. They also have to be able to manage a huge bureaucracy. They have to do all these different things, and they have to talk to the president in a way that is useful to the president, useful to the rest of the cabinet. So we think that they're pretty much unicorns. Um, uh, in yeah. the sense that they have to have these really this really special skill set, so yeah, that's an interesting idea. Ooh. And put them in the debates. Oh well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean well, have I, them maybe not have them debate, but at least be able to bring up questions about. The, it goes to a president's preparedness mm-hmm. if they understand who they're asking to do jobs and yeah. why they're asking them to do that. If it's a matter of friendships versus. This is a person I think is would be really good at this job, or I think is really likely right. to do. A good yeah, well, job. I would I would even go for that. I would actually put them in the debates because uh, I think the way our debate formats are completely useless, in which they say, okay, uh, a candidate, whoever you've got uh, problems in the Middle East, and we'd love to see uh, how you're going to solve the Middle East uh, conflicts and uh, your approach to the Middle East peace process. You have two minutes, <laughs> and then you have. Candidate B, you have 30 seconds for a rebuttal. There's nothing we're ever going to learn right. from that. So you'd have a, to me, you'd be much smarter to say, we're going to have a debate on foreign policy. We're going to have two hours on foreign policy. You're both going to bring your Secretary of Defense designates, your Secretary of State designates, and the questions are going to be asked of people as a group. Oh, that's and then interesting. And actually know something about them and how oh, they yeah. think about things and their approach to the world. Because the the idea that the president of the United States is an expert on everything that is well, everything on the planet is it is ridiculous. There's no dumb. way that any one person can know yeah. that stuff, and that's not what you want. You don't. Right. You wouldn't want a person who could know all that stuff because their ability to communicate it would probably be very poor. Mm-hmm. 
just I'm just saying that yeah, and the, experts do a better job of communicating at all at multiple levels. Experts right. in one topic versus a person who has a shallow knowledge of a lot of things, because right. that's what that would be. It would and, not be an expert knowledge in a lot of things. And these people are politicians. That's who we elect generally. <laughs> um, we we elect we like politicians, barring, you know, uh, yeah. Barring uh, the current president, uh, right? Uh, so we elect a politician. Um, though Trump, to a certain extent, is a, has always been a politician. He really is. If, well, you know, public performers, I think, are in some yeah. ways. They have to learn how to navigate other people's emotional. And he's he's always um, been in the political arena in, and, in New York and New Jersey f- forever, and arguing with with people or working <laughs> legislators. So he's got a lot of political experience. Uh, in in that environment uh, for for decades. So he's not as much of a novice as everybody thought he was, and he had a lot of really, really good connections uh, down the line. He's got a really good legacy going back. uh, Well, uh, uh, he's got connections to McCarthy. Right, through Cohn. Through Roy Cohn, and Roy Cohn taught him everything he knows, and you can tell that when you see (laughs) Donald Trump's style of politics. Uh, But But Roy Cohn was very successful. Yeah. And what he did, yeah, um, <clears throat> um, and that's well, well we, that's a that's, that's a, a different podcast that's for a, another day. <laughs> that's that a is different your podcast one. for another day. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have this executive. Order. I have the executive order. So this is a military order of November thirteenth, two thousand one. Detention, treatment, and trial of certain non-citizens in the war against terrorism. And that would be um, for anybody who's doing the math, forty-three. That would be President Bush. Uh, Yes, it's George W. Bush. Uh, George W. Bush, right. President Junior Bush. 43. So uh, in my classes, when we talk about presidents, we'll talk about Bush, the older one, and Bush, the younger one. And after a while, it was just so hard to try to say, to keep saying George Herbert Walker Bush versus George Walker Bush, that we just started calling them 41 or 43. Right. And that was that was easy part I think that it. seems to be the, yeah. the, the way people are shorthanding all of the 40s. Right. <laughs> right, right. We didn't used to do that, but we're doing that now. We always think that Jeb Bush has a little like forty-four or forty-five hat that Barbara Bush got him. Oh. He's got it in a closet, oh. and we can't use it. So I feel bad about that. <laughs> I was rooting for Jeb Bush. Um, anyway, so uh, the military order, uh, and this sets up the detention system, and it sets up a lot of other aspects about it. In theory, gives the Secretary of Defense authority to create a military tribunal system, so that the people who are detained. Uh, as suspected terrorists will eventually be put on trial by the United States military. So this was all within the executive order, and it's about three or four pages of the executive order. Uh, but when you look at it, the, the thing that matters is uh, when you think about what authority does the president have, it's right in the first paragraph of the executive order. And I'm going to read it. By the authority vested in me as president and as commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the United States, by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, including the Authorization for Use of Military Force Joint Resolution Public Law 10740. Okay. It says, it is hereby ordered as follows. Aha. So here's the law. So he underpins. Yeah, and they all say that. Here's the law. Oh, okay. So they all mention which one they're they're getting ready to either redefine Mm -hmm. or... And then or, says, Here I'm, how, here's how I'm going to execute the law. Okay. And then the question after all of this, when you, when you read any executive order, is does the president really have the authority under that law to do these things? So under this law, it created, up, created the detention center. Uh, it also uh, allowed the United States to do the enhanced interrogation program, according to the Bush administration. It also allowed the Obama administration 
to use drone strikes to assassinate American citizens. Americans, yeah. Yeah, I have, a couple I have some bitterness about that. Of uh, American citizens uh, who are abroad, who are involved in terrorism. Right. Um, p- p- clearly not nice people. Right. But I'm right. not entirely certain that that we want to be killing people in other countries rather than bringing them home and having a trial. Right, right. And Obama made those decisions and said, uh, I will make those decisions by myself, but I have the authority to do that because of the authorization to use military force. Uh, public law. I see. Uh, public law 10740. So all of that. And when Donald Trump got in office and he launched 59 cruise missiles in, oh, Syria, in Syria, that's right. He said, I have the authority to do this based on that same public law. When did that public law come into effect? Uh, that was, and I've got it right here. I'm prepared. That public law is, was it September 18th? I believe, um, September 18, 2001, uh, Public Law 10740. And here's what is amazing about this one is that here's where I say laws are vague. All right. So I'm going to give you a a law. Yeah, it was just within the first week after September 11. Wow. That's really reactive. Passed a resolution. And... What's amazing about this is here the, vague, the vagueness. Um, and most laws, when you read laws, I mean, some of them are, are very, very long. But this was is short and sweet, to the point. Uh, but laws start out with uh, uh, you know, a, a short title for it. as uh, a joint resolution to authorize the use of United States armed forces against those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States. And it's got a bunch of whereases. Whereas we were attacked on September 11th. Um, Whereas we have the right to self-defense, whereas we still think that the threat is out there, whereas the president is the one who leads us in foreign policy and national security issues, you know, a bunch of whereases, and then it says, okay, so we resolve this, all right? And section two says, and and this gives you an idea of how vague these things can be, Um, and authorizations to use military force are vaguer than other ones because it's the president's job as commander-in-chief, and that's not really defined, at all. Congress is the one that's going to say, Mr. President, you're going to have these many troops and these many ships and these many fighters and these many tanks, and you're going to spend this much money. But what you do with it is really the president's authority. But you, authority. Could, you could put the entire U.S. military into Grenada if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't fit. But I mean, you could, if you decided you were going to, you know, Pick on Belize. Belize, a tiny, small country in Central America. If you decided you wanted to invade, they wouldn't. You you could do it. You could do it. um, And isn't there there a certain length of time that you could do it? And then you'd have to actually come back to Congress and say, here's what the threat was or here's the reason for that. There are two things. There's some war powers limits, which are also very, very vague as well and not always obeyed. But the big thing that Congress has is money. Ah, and they can so say, they'll Mr. just President, cut you off. Yeah, you can't okay. have the money anymore. But that almost never works because as soon as Congress says we're not going to give you the money to do this, the president turns around and makes a speech to the American people and says, OK, everyone, we need to protect the United States of America. But Congress has decided that your son or daughter out in the field doesn't need ammunition. Oh, and which, there are no bandages to heal their wounds right. because Congress won't pay for it. And we can't bring them home because there's no planes. And we can't bring them home. In, so. Teddy Roosevelt did that. Oh, that's, that's The great smart. white fleet going around the world in, in 1901, uh, Congress tried to cut off the funding for it. And Roosevelt said, 
I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. America, but your children are going to have to live the rest of their lives in the Philippines <laughs> because the United States Congress won't pay to bring them home. That's really clever. Yeah. And, and since then, every president says, oh, I'll use that. It's good <laughs> enough for Teddy Roosevelt. It's good enough for me. And it apparently worked. Yeah. And uh, uh, full disclosure, I have a life-size Teddy Roosevelt in my office. Uh, cardboard Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. if you say a taxidermy Teddy no, no, Roosevelt, no. I'm just going to be completely not the actual Teddy Roosevelt. No, it's just he, cardboard. Also, he's black and white. Is he is he wearing his pith hat and his you know um, got his rifle on his shoulder? No, no, he's top hat and his, tails. Oh, he's yeah. dressed for the occasion. Yes, he is. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway, the authorization. So here's how vague this this can get. Um, in general, the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. <laughs> Are there any limits to that? Not that I can tell. You, you can't, if you're an alien... It doesn't include you, but it includes, oh. I mean, like alien from outer space. Alien from but outer if space. you are a humanoid living anywhere. It includes aliens. Wait. Uh, because if you were an organization and an alien group oh. can be considered an organization and you were involved in, <laughs> in any of this now or in the future... Right, it's very minority report. We're going to uh, predict yes. what you're going to what you're going to be doing <laughs> six that's months from now, and we're going to decide that you're going to be a criminal then, and so we're going to stop you from being a criminal so then. That's, that's pre-terrorism, I guess. That's what they that's call, terrifying. They call it. Yeah, uh, but basically, so, presidents have used this to say, um, "I can do anything." I can do best, because it's what anything. it says. It yeah. says I can do any. It says the president can do anything. Go right. ahead with your bad self. Right. If yeah. it, if you think that it's even remotely related to terrorism in any way. Mm-hmm. You're authorized to do it. Well, it's the necessary and appropriate part of it. Well, that's it kind of what like, is necessary that's and kind of like high crimes and misdemeanors. Like, what does that mean? Right. Does that? And I have a whole separate question for you about that because I'm, does that mean high crimes and high misdemeanors, or does that mean high crimes and misdemeanors like jaywalking? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that in another. We'll get to that in another. Okay. Podcast. Well, I guess Gerald Ford's definition of impeachment is the best. Okay. So Can I'm going to ask you about that, but I'm not going to ask you about that right now because we're okay. getting executive All right. orders. All right. Um, so, so now I see where the the executive orders can come from with that. That's mm-hmm. so general, right? That anybody who wanted to do anything could justify doing it. I mean, even me as a not lawyer, no legal training, could probably write an executive order that would fit under that because that's right. written so broadly. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they do it. Are do have there been more executive orders um, as we've gone along? Like, did George Washington do executive orders, or is that a newish thing? Uh, everybody's done executive orders, but we've kind of accelerated the number of them. But most of them, uh, most of them are small and irrelevant, and nobody pays attention. <laughs> To, to what they are. So the 926 that that 41 did, like three of them people know about right. and remember and were controversial. Is that, I mean, it it's, looked to me like when I looked at the presidential papers, which I am going to ask you about in our, in our, in another podcast, mm-hmm. is that you could just write an executive order for just about anything. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't necessarily carry. So what's the length of time that it carries as far as like, does it go from one president to the? Does it cover presidents in perpetuity if nobody mm-hmm. undoes it? 
uh, right, it has to be undone. Okay, so that's so what some of the numbers, that. some of the numbers are just undoing previous presidential executive orders that they don't want to be held to. Right. right. So I kill all the broccoli, back to our original bad example, mm-hmm. and you come in as the next president and you revive all the broccoli right, because you right. have broccoli with garlic sauce. And I rescind sauce. that executive order with so a new like, one. And you not only do you rescind it, you say, and garlic will be, I mean, every broccoli will be eaten every day with garlic sauce. Right, Because, right? right. you know, you can also change it mm-hmm. to make it something that fits your president. So you're Is reinterpreting that, the law. Okay. Essentially, based on the other, the previous president's reinterpretation of the law. Oh, my. And the only question comes in whether uh, someone brings it to the judicial system and says, wait a second. No, this is a completely bogus interpretation of it. And in the case of the military order, that's essentially what happened, is that over time, the judicial system turned around and said, okay, that's a nice little military order. And you've based it on on the authorization to use military force, but you interpreted that incorrectly. Ah, and okay. And they, they, they smacked Bush down several times over some of this. And it's it's a story that uh, Augie would know would know all the super level details because he deals with court systems. Yes, and I sort of deal with the policy a, stuff. He's wrestling a bear. He's so wrestling he a bear help right us now. Today. Uh, but the long the long and short of it is that uh, what happened is they detained people, and then they said, "But well, we want to put them on trial, and we want to put them on trial." by the United States military, which is a fuzzy thing to do because they're not members of the United States military. And military courts, by the way, for podcast listeners who may not know this, are very different mm-hmm. from civil and criminal courts that like regular, not regular, civilians go through. Right, right. I shouldn't say regular people because people in the Army are regular people too. Um, but there is the the... Military has a completely different right. way of doing courts. There is a completely different. Somebody mm-hmm. mentioned to me that mm-hmm. in the military court, you can't choose not to answer mm-hmm. because you've been ordered to answer. You've been ordered to tell, you know, so there's yeah. like all these different issues. And we'll get into that at some other time yeah. when we can find a JAG officer who will come talk yeah. to us about but that because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, the short version of it is that you are going to take. Uh, foreign nationals, you were going to put them on trial in which the prosecutors would be members of the United States military, their defense lawyers would be members of the United States military, and the people actually judging them would be members of the United States military. How's that going to turn out for them? Um, well, actually, it turned out the way that anybody who knows the JAG Corps and anybody who knows the United States military would have expected is that the defense lawyers turned around and said, this is unconstitutional. Can't do it. These are civilians. You cannot put them on court in a military tribunal system without a law, without legislation. Oh, I just fell in love with JAG officers everywhere. Uh, and, and they said, you can't do this. They said, not only that, but we, it would be unconstitutional for us really to defend these people because they're not within the United States military. They need civilian lawyers. Well, and one would think they would also need a court of, I mean, the, the jury would also be affected by... Mm-hmm. The fact that they're serving in the military versus... Um, right. Well, there's no jury. There's just the judges. Oh, there's decided. no jury in the system. Oh. No jury. So for, oh. for this system that they were starting to send up. Oh, my. So what happened is that pushed it out. The military defense lawyers <laughs> pushed it out into the civilian system. Is that why some of them ended up in New York, in uh, the courts in New York? Some in courts in New York. And a lot of the stuff eventually went to the Supreme Court. And, and what was going on is... Uh, I'll only talk about one of them, but the issue of habeas corpus. Does a detainee have the right to challenge their detention, to go in front of a court and say, hey, why am I being detained? 
and a judge will say, yes, that's fair, or yes, that's not fair. Uh, the Bush administration said, uh, hey, the authorization to use military force means that we don't have to have habeas corpus. And courts just turned around and said, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. They said, that's, that's not what that law means. It doesn't allow you to do that. And so trial after trial after trial uh, would go up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court essentially all told basically said that, you know, it's nice that you went ahead and have this law. But the law is talking about force. The law is not talking about a judicial system. And the law doesn't have uh, the ability to turn around and say, we passed this law, so therefore the Constitution is irrelevant. Now, you have to abide by the Constitution. So if you're holding someone and you're detaining them and you're accusing them of something, the United States must behave like the United States. It must follow its own laws, period. That's the way it works. And it took... Eight years, it took until 2009 to, to actually get a Military Commissions Act, which was not, you know, constantly having pieces of it struck down by courts over again. They passed one in 2006, and courts were going, no, 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 to this part, that part, 2009. So Bush starts something in, in November of 2001, and it's not ironed out by the United States political system and judicial system until 2009. And the next president. Right, and the next president. I mean, at that point, we've had a—Bush has served both of his terms, and we are now into President Obama's right, right. term. And people who had been detained, some of them had been held for five or six years and then released with a—sorry. Oh, yeah, see, that wouldn't make you angry and want right. to do harm to other people. I mean, come on, right. it would make me angry, and I'm not generally an angry person. Yeah. But I have to admit, I'd be pretty PO'd if I— was held, you know, four, five, six years in Guantanamo in a cage, um, and then told, you know, hey, you oh, know, sorry about that. Didn't have the authority bad, to do it. Our bad. And now we don't feel like we can actually put you on trial because we don't have enough evidence. And I'm not going to even yeah. return you to your country. I'm going to return you to a country that's willing to take you. Cause right. Because your country several said happen? your country said no, thank you. So now, several times they ended up in. So not only do you spend a all expenses paid vacation in Guantanamo, right. not in under anybody's view of vacation, but then you end up in a country that's not even your country. Right, right. And then you have to try to get yourself home from there. That yeah. would be And there are a lot of aggravating. myths about it in which people say that the people released from Guantanamo, they all went back to terrorism and they've killed people and things like that. And there are a couple of cases where people did come out and say, okay, you know, you didn't convince me not to be a terrorist when you held me, you know, for five years. But other cases in which people were released and there was, uh, during the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump brought up a, a handful of people who were from Qatar who he said were released by the Obama administration and then went back to terrorism. And there were a couple, only a couple pro problems with that statement is they, they were released by the Bush administration, not by Obama. And when they were Supposedly back into terrorism, Cutter said, no, they're not. They're here under house arrest, and we know exactly where they are, and they're not doing anything at all. They can't because we have them. Uh, so things like that. But the bigger thing was in one case, uh, there was an attempt by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula to bomb a synagogue in Chicago by putting uh, bombs in printer cartridges and then shipping those printer cartridges on a across FedEx, the right, world, like FedEx yeah. or something like, here, deliver this to this synagogue. Right. And Nobody will think that's suspicious. And the thing uh, was caught 
because someone who had been in Guantanamo had been turned by the Bush administration ah. and then released and went back and joined al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and was an informant. Huh. And apparently Which, walked in somewhere and said, this is going to happen. You know, grab this plane. And they, when the plane landed, like somewhere in, in Europe, I don't remember where, a plane landed and they searched it and they found the bombs. Huh. So there's a lot. Everything so there, imaginable is there. So there's <laughs> right because the Bush argument, the Bush presidency argument would then be: see, it's a good thing. Right, right. It's a good thing for us to detain people because if we wear them down or we mm. re-educate them, I hate to use that phrase because that's been used so terrifyingly and de-radicalize. Uh, there we go. Is, de-radicalize. Is the, the official phrase now. <laughs> um, if we could de-radicalize them, then they might actually be informants, and and so they would say, "Look, it's a good thing we did this." Yeah. Or we find out that they actually they were never radicals, and they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, oh yeah, because that never happens. There was one never guy happens that you know who said you're just was, walking down the street and somebody yanks you off the street and throws you in a truck and does something yeah. terrible to you. I mean, hello. Well, this was in the battlefield in Afghanistan. One guy, an Algerian citizen, uh, Boumedian, uh, I don't remember his first name, uh, but he brought a, a case up to the Supreme Court uh, related to habeas corpus. Uh, but this guy, uh, when he was picked up, said, yes, I was in Afghanistan. Yes, I was out on the battlefield. I'm a member of the Red Crescent. Oh, I'm a relief a worker. Hel- okay, he was going to say a health refu- worker. Okay. Right. And, you know, and ah. I happened to be in a situation where you know, somebody's injured and, okay, yeah, they're Taliban, they're but, bad guy, but that's not my job is to sit there and say who gets health care is, is based on their political beliefs. It's who gets health care is who needs it. Right. And just as a side note, the Red Cross works the same way. Right, they, right. they, In our wars with anybody, they were serving both sides because it's not their job to pick the political side right, of it. Right. It's their job to save lives and help people as much as they can and then— Right. Everybody said, else and, has to work out and the United who's States military, worthy and who's not worthy. And the military just nabbed me with a group of people, and I was there to deliver uh, you know, like, relief services to them. Yeah, see me with these yeah. bandages and with right. no gun. I'm probably not, you know. Well, but also, in fairness to the military, making a split decision, you have a few seconds to decide right. whether this is a person who's going to kill people in your platoon or people that, you know, your brothers in arms. You're not going to... You're going to err to the side of caution 99% of the time because you right. don't want to get shot in the face so, so you or pick, have anybody that you love shot in the face. You pick them up because just for exactly right. the reasons you, you mentioned, but at a certain point in time, you sit there and go, okay, uh, somebody else at a higher level who when you hand them off is going to say, okay, these people are dangerous and this person just got caught up in a sweep. We, we hope. Right. And we eventually the, the guy was released and with, it, a, with a sorry. <laughs> But how long was he a guest in Guantanamo um, or wherever? I think it was five or six years. Yike. Okay, that's a long time to – oh, our bad. Yeah. Oh, my. Can – okay, we don't have very much mm-hmm. longer, so I want to ask a last question about this, and then mm-hmm. um, and then I'll ask you some other things later. Um, so can they sue? Uh, They've Can tried. they sue and ask for money for repar? You know, like because I know that if mm. you go to jail and you were improperly jailed, you can often sue the prosecutor's office or the state where that happened. If it happens to you in criminal court, um, and you end up being sort of railroaded, you can get money. Right. right. Sometimes, not always, but you can get money. Could they? Can they do that? Um, a couple of them have tried, 
and actually, I have to say, I don't know where those went. As oh. far as as far as I know, uh, could probably look that up. Uh, but as far as I know, uh, the United States government has just said, you know, that's interesting. You know, well, it's not interested which, at all. In, well, and you know, <laughs> if you were, I suppose their argument would be, if you were in that situation, then you knew that there there was a potential yeah. to be to be swept up in these mm-hmm. in these issues. So, to finish out with executive mm-hmm. orders, so executive orders are incredibly powerful. Very short term, potentially short term, potentially short term, or potentially eight years. Yeah, like you might be able to make this stick for a while, but the courts are going to ultimately decide if your executive order is bonkers or not. And the the courts will, uh, and I guess there's there's another avenue as well. Let's say you you uh, have an executive order, and most people, or I should say, and a significant minority in Congress says this is unconstitutional. But if your own political party is control, controlling the House and the Senate, then your executive order might stick because your party doesn't want to take you down. And if somebody else doesn't have cause to bring it to the legal system, it may just last for four or eight years. And then when you leave office, when a new president comes in and says, and maybe new parties control Congress and turn around and say, this is all garbage and gets rid of it the first day. Okay. So so it can be just uh, overturned politically if it doesn't get into the courts. So midterms if 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 you had if President Trump had lost both the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. then potentially some of his executive orders could have been right. um, could have been overturned because there would have been an opposition party. Right. His national emergency right now. His national emergency that he's going to use to take money from other Department of Defense accounts and switch it over to building the wall, right? And this is going on right now in which he says this is a national emergency and Congress can essentially turn around and say, okay, we're going to actually pass a specific law that says, no, Mr. President, you can't. So we're going to actually write a law to reinterpret the other law to say, Yes, you have the authority in a previous law that says you can take money from one place and to put it in another place related to a national emergency. But we're going to specifically pass a law today that says the wall, the immigration problem right now, is not one of those national emergencies. You so, cannot do this. So they can't, but they can't take away his power to declare an, an emergency. Uh, right. Right. Like they just can say this is not one. This is not but they one. can't say to the to the executive office to the executive office itself, you cannot declare anything, an um, emergency. Unless, right? That's still a presidential power. Uh, that you actually, can that's say. a that's a piece of legislation which allows the president to declare a national emergency. They could they could rewrite write, that. They could rewrite that legislation and eliminate it completely and take that power away from the president and say that Congress declares a national emergency. Oh my goodness! So they they could do that. Uh, that would be harder to do because well, then in because other cases— Because it's a split Congress, too. Uh, they wouldn't—I mean, they'd have a heck of a time doing that. And there are times where you might say there is the need to declare a national right. emergency, right? Not if sure we, you want to remove that from the executive office right, altogether. Right. Because you may do it to the opposition party, but then it will also be true for you when your president is in the opposition. Right. and just So the, that's the other thing that one has to be cautious about as far as ex- all of these kinds of yeah. machinations is— this can eventually come back to hurt your party eventually because your party will probably be the party of power yeah. at some point. 
Yeah. And there are sometimes when you have national emergencies that you don't realize. It's like the balanced budget amendment. People say you have to have a balanced budget and you can't run any yearly deficit at all. And there are a whole lot of people who are nervous about that because all of a sudden uh, you have a war. The president needs to spend money right away. And he's got to have a deficit right away because we need to spend money to protect the United States. And that might run afoul of a balanced budget amendment of the Constitution. Oh. So you say you need wiggle room. Yeah. To do things quickly, because what we do know about Congress is it's very difficult for them to do things quickly. Even if, uh, well, it used to be Republicans could do things quickly and Democrats couldn't because Democrats were like this coalition that no matter what, even if they controlled the House and the Senate, they'd wind up fighting each other all the time. Now Republicans have replaced the Democrats in that way and that Republicans are always at each other's throats. And the Democrats seem to have a little bit more solidarity. Uh, and then actually, weirdly, B Donald Trump came along and unified most Republicans to where he's got better approval ratings among Republicans than Ronald Reagan did. Yeah, which, which is just is, amazing. Which is amazing. And Democrats have turned around and said, Trump has got a 40 percent approval rating. So we're definitely going to win 2020. Let's uh, have a civil war among the Democratic Party. That's sort of the solution the Democrats came up with. <laughs> now the liberals and the more moderates are just at each other's throats over the past week and a half. Uh, so Ugh. pretty amazing. <laughs> I love it, but it's, I, I love all of it, but it's sometimes um, exhausting, I have to yes. say. Because there are sometimes when I sit back and I say, why can't people just be nice to each other and work together? Mm -hmm. Like what, whatever happened to civility? Yeah. The, the, one of the reasons we called this pod podcast Civil Discourse is because we wanted to be able to talk about things and disagree Right. Civilly, we wanted to be able to say, "Well, I don't really, I don't really, I'm not seeing it, I'm not feeling it," and not have it be. And so, I hate you, and I think you're a horrible person, and I want to set you right. on fire. Like it's not, it shouldn't be like that. You should be able to disagree respect respectfully and still get stuff done, or at least try to find to get stuff done. Yeah. But, but there is my soapbox for the end of this episode, <laughs> and I shall climb down from the end of this this soapbox and say thank you so much for talking to us about executive orders. Great. Thank you. Um, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Uh, sure, probably pretty soon. <laughs> You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.